You're listening to Retro Sermons, timeless lessons from the Bible spoken by voices of the past. I'm to give you a book. There's one up here and a couple over here, brother. We're studying tonight lesson number four in the booklet, which is on page 17. Some of you perhaps have seen an announcement to the contrary in the paper, but this will be the lesson tonight, and then tomorrow evening we will be talking about the one that is listed as lesson number seven, which is a young Christian's faith in a faithless world. Then Sunday evening at 8 o'clock, how shall a Christian choose his recreation? I believe that may be listed as lesson number five. I think that's right in the booklet, but anyway, that's it. And we're setting that particular service at 8 o'clock because there are a number in the area that live relatively near who have expressed a desire to be here and to hear that lesson. And so they will attend their own services at some other congregation and then try to make it here. I've appreciated more than I know how to say to you the fine response that we have had to the things that I have sought to say with reference to matters that affect us where we live every day of our lives. I sometimes say, and I think it's true, that nearly all of us either have some kind of a problem that affects our families, or we are so conscious that we could have one that we're all interested in what nearly anybody has to say about family problems. Whether it's a husband that has a problem with a wife, or a wife such as I have who has a problem with her husband, or whether it's parents with their children or children with their parents, in-laws or outlaws, as the case might be, nearly everybody either has something that they feel like might be improved or they're fearful they may run into something that they might have missed if they missed a discussion of this kind. And as I've said previously, I think over the country where I've gone, and I think this makes some 25 or 26 times that I have delivered this particular series since January the 1st, the response has been what it has because of the consciousness of the condition that exists in this present generation. Perhaps never, as never before in the history of this country, I won't say in the history of the world, but perhaps never before in the history of this country, has there been such a complete breakdown of respect for authority, civil and parental, to say nothing of a breakdown with respect to divine authority. And I think people who are thinking through the things that are occurring about us and the terrible demonstrations of utter disrespect for duly constituted authority that have been so obvious to anybody that has been awake a to what's happening as recorded in newspapers and on television and radio in our own country and almost in our own front door within the last five or six years is concerned. I'm concerned about what's happening to our country. I'm concerned more what is happening to our homes. And you say, well, uh, why is that so? And my response to that is that as goes the home, as goes the family, so goes the nation. I've been convinced for a long time that all of the things that we are conscious of because of the news media, the things that we see and hear and read, 
are not often within themselves traceable to the public school system as rotten, I think, in some places and under some circumstances as it is. Rather, the real blame for the breakdown in the moral structure of this country is traceable to our own front doors as fathers and mothers. And I don't believe there's any way in the world that we can escape this responsibility. The family is God's first nursery. The family existed prior to the civil state. The family existed prior to the church. The family has existed since Eden. And I think that you will not find in, the, in a single civilization that has risen and fallen in the annals of time, you will not find a single nation, in fact, which has deteriorated, that has gone to pot, whether it be figurative or liberal, but that has found its breakdown in the family. Destroy the family unit and respect that God demands shall be manifested toward parents and the authority that God has placed in the hands of parents and you will find no nation, no civilization able to survive that particular crack in the structure. Tonight we come to talk about Christ in the home, in your home, in my home. But as an introduction to this particular lesson, I call your attention to a passage in the second chapter of the Philippian letter, wherein the apostle said to the Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. That statement's always challenged me. It's intrigued me. And I, as a young preacher, used to look at it and think, well, how on earth can I have the mind of the Savior. And the more I reflect upon that, the more I see nothing really mysterious about the principle. For the truth is, even the mind of one human cannot be conveyed to the mind of another human except by one of two, or both of two ways. You come to know what I am thinking by what I say. You know my mind through my words. You may also read my thoughts by virtue of what you see me do. I'm the first to admit that actions are not always reflective of a true state of heart, and so I might be acting hypocritically pretending one thing when in reality I believe something else. But that's also true of one's words. I may talk it one way and practice it another or believe it another. So we're assuming here that uh, we are reflecting when we speak and when we act truth. We are reflecting our true minds, our true selves. And so you come to know what I'm thinking as I talk to you and as you may see me act. Now the same is true in reverse. You see, as I look out over this audience tonight, I really don't know what a single one of you is thinking. Now you have the advantage of me, don't you? Because you're reading me. Now, sometimes I'll come across a phrase or a sentence and I'll see somebody sort of frown and, and uh, I may think, well, I, that didn't sit too well with somebody. And on the other hand, I make a statement and somebody smiles and I think that's pretty good. But in reality, I don't know, you might be throwing me a smile when in your heart you're frowning or you may be throwing me a frown when in your heart you're smiling. So I really don't come to know your mind except as you reveal it to me by what you say. Now the text says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. And I say there's no mystery about that for the truth is I can't even know what Jesus Christ thought 
except as I see what he did and hear what he said through the word that he has left us. That's the only way in the world I can know the mind of Christ. Now, he being infinite can read my heart. And of Jesus himself, the apostle John said, he needed not that any man should tell him anything, for he knew what was in man. But this is divinity. God is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning, but man doesn't. Man comes to have knowledge. He has perception only as he learns it. And I come to know the mind of Christ, and you come to know the mind of Christ only as he has revealed it through his words and through his deeds. And we are dependent upon every word and every deed of Christ insofar as our knowledge is concerned for what we know about his thinking. And you remove the New Testament from the mind of man and you have removed all of divine revelation concerning the Christ who came into the world. You may read the Old Testament and be impressed with the thought that there was one who was to come, of whom the law of Moses and the prophets of the Old Testament era that lived from four or five hundred years before Christ back for twenty-five hundred years and spoke and wrote and typified the things concerning the coming king, but we are dependent upon the New Testament for the things that Jesus spoke and which are matters of historical record. So when we find Jesus himself in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saying certain things and performing certain deeds, we know, based on what he said and what he did, what he thought. So we read his mind. But the mind of Jesus is not confined to the words that are written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The rest of the New Testament was composed under the same circumstances and conditions as the four Gospels. And the very ones who wrote the first four books of the New Testament to at least some of them, to Matthew and to John, two of the apostles which wrote two of the Gospels. Jesus said, along with the other ten apostles, before he left the earth, I have many things to say unto you, but you are not able to bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He shall receive of mine, and, for, and he shall show it unto you. The point is that even the apostles themselves at a certain point in Jesus dealing with them were not able to comprehend all that he wanted them to know. And so he promised them that after he left this earth following his resurrection, he would impart to them the Holy Spirit who would miraculously endow them with a memory that would bring to their minds the things that he had said. And in addition to them, he, to that, he would speak through them and make known the things that he wanted them to know and speak in a given situation. And thus it was that the apostle Paul talked about having the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.13 and following. You and I can have the mind of Christ then only as the apostles of Christ have revealed to us both in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, the other 25 books, or, or the other 22, uh, 20, I'll get it right in a minute, 23 books of the New Testament, in addition to the Gospels, what Jesus thought. Now you say, well, why do you take all that time, preacher, talking about the mind of Christ? Well, because it's very pertinent to the lesson that I want us to get tonight. Because when I talk about Christ in your home and in my home, we're concerned about what Jesus thought in a home situation. Now the outline of the lesson is a very simple one. There are only four points to it in tonight's lesson. I want us to take a look at Jesus and see his thinking in his own family circle. Then we want to visit with him in the home of some of his friends, somebody else's home. Then we want to study briefly some things that he said about the sanctity of the marriage relationship. And then we want to close by calling attention to what he taught his apostles about a rule that would never fail to bring happiness to anybody's home that's willing to apply the rule. Now, first of all, 
in the second chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, we have a statement regarding the thinking of Jesus with reference to his own parents and toward parental authority. Jesus, at the age of twelve, had gone with his parents up to Jerusalem to observe the feast of the Passover and returned with them. And in Luke 2, verse 51, the record says, He went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was subject unto them. That's not a long statement, is it? Five words will summarize the attitude of Jesus Christ toward parental authority. He was subject unto them. Now, the Apostle Paul in the sixth chapter of the Ephesian letter, which we've already studied at length this week, made the exhortation to children, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. You see, there's not any difference in what Jesus practiced with reference to his own earthly parents and that which he taught his apostle to teach children to do. And my young friends, boys and girls, hear me. If you were to ask me tonight, in my home, if I want to be like Jesus was in his home, what should I do? And my immediate answer to that is, be subject to your parents. Obey your parents. Now, I recognize that one of the big problems that those of us who are older have is not to forget that we were one time young. And I said to you, I think the first night or maybe the second night of the series, that I feel that one of the worst things that any parent can ever have happen to him is to forget that he was one time young. That once he thought as a child, as Paul put it, that he felt as a child, and that he spoke as a child. But even the apostle, though recognizing that, said there came a time when he put away childish things. But there is the factuality of one's thinking, feeling, and speaking as a child. Now, one of the things, it seems to be, that frequently characterizes children and I can remember this quite well in my own life. I thank God that I didn't turn out to be a rebel. But I remember quite well when certain requests I would make of my father or mother, they'd say no. And you know, just like an old toad frog, at times I tended to swell up and I resented that and I'd go off and pout. And I would think to myself, even though I doesn't say it to them, they just don't understand the situation. They don't understand the problems of young people. Well, uh, the truth is, they understood my problem a lot better than I understood it myself. They just saw at times certain problems that I would become involved in if I pursued my want to. That would become so great to me that I wouldn't know how to solve that a problem at all. And what I'm trying to say to you in this connection, my young friend, is this. That's what God gave kids, daddies and mothers for. To do some thinking ahead of them. To know what goes on in this world. Now, I'm sorry to say that there are many young people in this world today that have daddies and mothers, and that's all they are. They just bred, shall I say. And like lower animals, they weaned them and turned them out on society and they don't care what happens to their offspring. And as I said to you the other night, if you have a daddy and are a mother, when you start to leave the house, I don't care whether you're 8 or 10 or 12 or 14 or 16 or 18, 
and your mother says or your daddy says, son or daughter, don't forget who you are. Remember whose name you were. Keep your nose clean. I hope you'll be back tonight on schedule. You know what the hour is. Don't miss it. That instead of getting a cucklebur under your saddle, that you'll get out on your knees and thank God that you've got a daddy and a mother that cares where you go, with whom you associate, what you do, what time you get in at night. For there are multiplied millions of them in earth, on earth tonight who have parents who have brought them into the world that don't care where they go, with whom they are associated, what they do, or whether they get in at night. I say just thank God your daddy and mother are concerned about what happens to you. One of the great lessons that all of us need to learn, and it's not always an easy one to learn, is that it's God's plan for parents to set the standards of conduct and demand certain standards of conduct morally and spiritually of their children. And the child who wants to be like the Lord Jesus Christ is going to obey his parents in all things that are in harmony with God's will. And when daddies and mothers allow their kids to grow up and the kids run the show, they're creating the very problems back here in infancy and in early years that are breaking out in the riots and the burning of school buildings and courthouses and all of the other breakdown in law and order in the state and in the nation that we've seen and heard so much about and so desperately deplore that's occurred in the last four or five years. And before we start cussing everybody else out, let's take a look at ourselves what we are doing. I don't think I've made this statement yet. But I usually make it sometime along the way. I've thought about some great preachers that I read about in the Bible. Paul was a great one and Peter was a great one. There are some that are pictured to us in the Old Testament as great preachers. But outside of Jesus himself, in my judgment, the greatest preacher that ever lived on the earth was a fellow that didn't have much to show in some respects, numerically at least, for his labors. But really there's more said about him in one brief statement than of any other preacher in the Bible other than to say that he was a preacher of righteousness and that it was old Noah. And I want to tell you as bad as this present world is, as evil as it is, and it's evil, this world is not yet as bad as was the world in which Noah lived. The cup of its wrath, of God's wrath against evil, has not completely filled yet, but it did in the days of Noah, for he wiped that one from the face of the earth. And of Noah it said, and it's the only man in the Bible of whom it's ever said, he saved his own house. Now, I'll just tell you, if you and I will do as well as old Noah did, it'll change the whole complexion of this world. While we're complaining and fussing about what everybody else's children are doing, it'll pay you and me to take a good first-class hard look at our own house. It's an easy thing, you know, when everything goes wrong with us to try to find some kind of a whipping boy to blame all our troubles on and we're willing to look at everybody except ourselves. Just like the person you know that does nothing but eats sweets and then wonders why he has diabetes and he wants to blame it on some virus or something else. It's silly. I do not know how long this world's going to stand and nobody else does. I don't have any patience or with or confidence in the date setters and the ones that always know more about the second coming of Christ than the Lord himself knew. He said he didn't know the day and the hour, but some people know it these days, you know. 
But I know one thing, that there's a principle that's taught in the Bible that there can be enough leaven on the part of the people that profess to do right that their leaven may preserve the destruction of the world. How much? I don't know. But I can cite you to instance after instance in the New Testament where God's wrath was stayed because of the righteousness of the people, those who feared God and sought to serve him. And you and I as parents have it as a solemn responsibility to make it indelibly impressed upon the minds and hearts of our children that obedience to God is the first consideration of life. Obedience. On every page almost of the book of God, this point is emphasized. And if there is any point in God's book that is emphasized, it is that man is happy only as he obeys God. Did you ever stop to think about why you're so miserable when you've done something that's wrong, why you're so unhappy? It's because of the principle of disobedience and obedience. You can't be happy. You can't have peace of mind. Nobody else can. When he is in violation of what he knows to be right. He may try to excuse himself and add them like hide yonder from the presence of God or seek to do it, but his conscience pounds him. There's not any way to find happiness. I don't care how much money you have. If money would bring happiness, enough of it, then all of the rich people in the world would be supremely happy and all the paupers would be miserable. But it doesn't work that way for some of the most happy people on earth are the ones that are the poorest. Some of the most unhappy people on earth are the most powerful. Some of the most miserable people in the world are those that have the highest and the most far-reaching social prestige and influence. And so these things that are concocted and promoted and uh, deceptively planted and uh, accept in and accepted by the mind of men are not the answers to happiness and contentment of mind. But obedience is, and the time to begin learning obedience, my young friend, is in the day of youth. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, said the wise man. In Ecclesiastes 12. Before the days come, evil days come of the years draw nigh when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. If you would be happy in the days of your youth, do right. Not according to what the standard of the present here and now is, but according to what God has said is right. And after all said and done, that's so far as the Christian is concerned is the ultimate answer to it all. What God has said, not what some man has said, not even some preacher has said. have about as many different notions about some things as you've got preachers. And God hasn't left the measurement or the stating of what is right and wrong to human wisdom. He's revealed. Jeremiah said in the long ago, it's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. So man needs a guide. And as long as he's a sinful creature, and he always will be in the flesh, he needs counsel, he needs guidance, he needs help from on high, and that's given to us in the book of God. And the perfect illustration and demonstration of it is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I come back to the point that I made a while ago. You ought to see what you as a child ought to be and how you ought to think and how you ought to act in your own home. Then if your parents are Christians and they're being guided by the book of God, the answer to that is obey your parents. Be subject unto them. That's the way Jesus was. Well, since we've already talked about the B part of that particular division that shows that a child reaches the point in life where he may well have to look after his aged parent, his afflicted parent, and that he fails to obey God if he doesn't, since we've already talked about that, we'll leave that point tonight. And we'll point pass to point number two. We want to take a look at Jesus in the home of others. And we have a very pointed illustration of that recorded in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. A very familiar story, too. 
The record says, Now as they went on their way, he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and she came up to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister did leave me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. But the Lord answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, for Mary hath chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You know, I don't know how many times I'd read that passage before I failed to see a point. Jesus said, Martha, you're careful and troubled about, underscore it, many things. But one thing, in contrast to the many things, you see. But one thing is needful. For Mary hath chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. She's found this one thing that she needed. I do not believe that the Lord is telling Martha that household duties are not to be looked after. There are too many other passages in God's book that show the responsibility of a wife and a mother in being a keeper at home to deny that there are chores that belong to the house that have to do with the proper running of uh, the detailed matters of a family to say that Jesus was saying, now, that's not the thing for a woman to do. Now, I'd probably be the first to agree that there are a lot of folks that are promoting the lib movement today that would say that's it. That's not what the Lord said. That's not what the Lord said. What is the point? Here it is. Martha was simply not putting first things first. She never had learned that the real secret to happiness and the answer to the removal of all her anxieties was not being concerned about what somebody else was or wasn't doing or being all wrapped up in the little details that necessarily are a part of home life. But her great mistake was not learning that the real solace of mind and comfort of spirit and peace of heart is found in communion with Christ. Mary had that lesson. She learned it. And I, the more I read this passage and the more I study it and seek to study it in depth, the more I am thoroughly convinced that this is the point of the Lord's teaching. That Mary was putting first things first. Now, I don't understand that this means that in order for a housewife or anybody else to please the Lord, that he's got to go around all the time, you know, whatever he's doing, whether he's driving a car or driving a nail or, or uh, turning a screwdriver here, that he's got to be reading his Bible while he's working with one hand. And, and uh, I don't understand that. There's not anything in this passage that indicates this. But this is one of these passages, it's a whole lot like that one in 1 Thessalonians 5, where the apostle said, Pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. You know, if I went around uttering a, a vocal prayer all the time, I never would find time to preach. So when we come to see a passage like this without just going off the wrong, the wrong end, and saying, well, I've just got to stand on a street corner and in my house or by my bedside at night or wherever it may be and just do nothing but pray, 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 then uh, I know there's something wrong because God's told me to do something else. And that involves my mind. So what is the principle with reference to prayer? The idea is that the child of God is to ever, is ever to be in a prayerful spirit always in the proper relationship with God as his father and conscious that he is the child of a king. Or as John put it, Behold what love the Father bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. 
Behold what manner of love. This is a, is a type of love that the world had never known apart from one's relationship to God. And so the apostle says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. A few years ago you could ask a group of youngsters, What little boy had you rather be than anybody in the world? They'd say, I'd rather be Prince Charles. Well, what little girl would you rather be than anybody else in the world? Well, I'd rather be Caroline Kennedy. And we all have a tendency, you know, to identify with our peers regardless of our age. At least this, I think, is a general tendency. And we frequently say, you know, well, I'd like to be so-and-so. I wish I were that or I had this, that, and the other. But you don't hear many people quoting John, do you? And when you stop to think about it, what is there in the way of a relationship, of a title, or of a name that the mind of mortal man can conceive that supersedes what John says? Behold what manner of love, the emphasis on the word manner, the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be, not merely be, but that we should be called children of God. That beats them all. There's not any higher relationship or more noble or distinguished relationship that one can have than to have God as his father and to be called God's child. What does this have to do with the story of Mary and Martha? Well, the point is that Mary had learned what it meant to walk with the Lord, to take advantage always and everywhere of that relationship that she might sustain to him. I don't believe that there's any difference in what Jesus was teaching Martha in this particular instance and you and me and what he said in Matthew chapter 6 at verse 33 when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. I understand that the Lord was teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in this particular text a lesson on balance, the proper perspective of life. There is one thing that must be at the very hub of the wheel. There must be something at the very center, at the very core of all of the lives of all of the people who are going to be happy in this world. And that something is the rule of God. And that's what the word kingdom in that passage means. Sometimes, you know, the word kingdom refers to the people of God. And sometimes it refers to the territory that, of God's occupancy. And sometimes it uh, refers to the uh, king himself. And sometimes it refers to the law of the king. And I'm convinced that it's the rule or the law of the king that's under consideration here. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the rule of God. That's the point. The rule of the God of heaven and everything else will fit into its place. Martha, you've started at the wrong side of the circle. You're on the outside looking in. You ought to be on the inside with Christ looking out toward all of the other affairs of life. Mary has learned that you haven't. You say, what's that have to do with my home? Christ in my home. But if you're, going to have to ha if you're going to have a happy home, it must be Christ-centered. If the real eternal values that move us in time and connect us with eternity are to be realistic to us, they must be, the must be tied to him who lived in time and who was eternal and is eternal. And that means Christ. You see, I just can't have the proper relationship toward my wife. She can't have the proper relation toward her husband. I can't have the proper attitude toward my children. And my children can't have the proper attitude toward their parents. Unless it's the attitude that God wants all of us to have. You see, it all comes back to the same focal point. 
And hence, if wife seeks the rule of God, and if husband seeks the rule of God, and if children seek the rule of God, and if as parents we seek the rule of God, and all are seeking the rule of God in all of the affairs that tie us together by flesh and blood, then somehow, and I don't pretend to be able to say how the somehow, but just the somehow, it'll all work out. You say, why? I say it because God said it. And I believe what he said. I believe what he said. I learned a long time ago that if I tried to explain everything that God said that he tells me to take as a matter of faith, I'd spend all my time and never would learn anything trying to explain things. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And as certainly as we accept this book as the divine revelation of the mind of God, that's the beginning and the end of wisdom insofar as moral and spiritual matters are concerned for the believer. That's the very reason that the Bible exists, because it's not in man's power within himself to direct his own steps. He needs help. And there's not anybody but an egotistical nut that thinks he doesn't need help. All of us know we need When we stop to think about it, for there's not any one of us who is the end of all wisdom, but God is. And he's revealed this to us in his book as to what we need to help us in our family activities. Well, you say, how are we going to go about getting this thing into the kids and into ourselves? Well, I'll tell you the place to begin is when they are children, and maybe like it happened to Timothy, you know, even with his grandma before his mom. Time to begin raising children is with their grandparents. Maybe that two or three great-great-greats on top of that. Kids just don't grow up accidentally and become somebody without some nurturing and training. Did you know that it's the natural thing for a plant to regress instead of progress without pruning? You ever thought about that? You want to know what happens to horses when they're allowed to go wild out on the plains of the West? They degenerate. That's the reason I know that the theory of evolution is not true. Couldn't be. I don't care what kind of selection you've got. The trend of the species is always to regress, not progress, but regress. Man's just like a plant, or man's just like an animal left to itself. He will never make it. One of the principles of the Bible is that if... Uh, if a plant is going to produce, it has to be pruned. And the Bible teaches that if a child is going to bear the fruit that it should bear in righteous conduct, it's going to have to learn obedience. And that involves some pruning, I'll tell you. Some of it has to be done in the woodshed, and some other of it has to be done in some other places. But it involves pruning, discipline, training. It just doesn't happen any other way. And the thing that teaches us to train and admonish and to nurture is the Word of God. That's always the standard of moral and spiritual life and conduct, and we can't escape it. And the farther people get away from these high and holy standards that have been here since time immemorial, that have been revealed on the pages of God's book, to that extent they become like barbarians. And the more people become like Christ, the more civilized and sensible and decent they are. I didn't establish it that way. God did. That's the way it is. That's God's immutable, unchangeable, eternal law because it partakes of the very nature of God himself. You know, I'll ever be grateful for some of the things that I learned when I was a child. Talking about when to start. You just can't start too young. But I have a few memories. You know, there is a period in our life where we can't even remember. We, we live before we begin remembering, but we begin to pick up some things. And even when we were five or six years old, you know, there are relatively few things that most of us can distinctly recall that occurred before we were five or six. We might have some hazy notions of some things. 
But one thing that I remember quite well was when I was learning to read. And I learned my ABCs. And I studied that old primer, you know, that said Baby Ray had one dog. Remember that? He just had one. And Baby Ray had two kitty cats, I believe. And Baby Ray had four ducks. I've forgotten what he had three of. Somebody will tell me after church. But anyway, uh, as I began to put some of these words together in the old primer, and I learned certain letters and that letters made words, my old aunt, Dora, that really served in the capacity of a grandmother to me, my father was an orphan child. He died when, or his mother died when he was nine days old, and his father died when he was seven years old, and he was just sort of kicked around and fell at a post. But one of the kinsmen picked him up and took care of him as a little waif almost, and mothered him, loved him. And then when her husband died, she was getting long in years, she came to live at our house, and she was there when I was born. And I never knew any real grandmother except her who was not my real grandmother. That is, to know her well. My mother had a mother that I can barely recall, but I don't have any close memories. But one of the things that I remember old Aunt Dora doing was as I was learning some of those words in the primer, she made it a point of her business to show me the same words in the book of God. Very simple words. Two and three letter words. But with the passing of time, with this constant training by her and my mother, I came to read in the Bible and I came to read it regularly. And even when I was a teenage boy in high school, maybe out on a date or out to some kind of a party or some kind of a function getting in late at night, Many has been the night when I'd come in that door to start to my bed. That old voice would come through the door and say, Jim, have you read your chapter today? Have you read your chapter today? You know, she made such an impression on me about reading the Word of God every day of my life. I couldn't anymore go to sleep tonight without some time reading a portion of the Word of God than I expect to fly to the moon tomorrow. Somebody said, well, do you think we ought to just read the Bible from a sheer habit? Well, not from sheer habit, but I'd like to ask you a question. Do you think we ought to have the habit of not reading it? Is that a good habit? What are we talking about? We're talking about the things that we implant in the minds and the hearts of our children when they're young and impress upon them and stay with them, that will go with them through life, that will become their stay and their guide and that which will they can rest on not only in time but in time in times of trouble and that they can depend upon when they come to press the pillow of death. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about partying and playing. We're talking about things that are dead serious. And I want to tell you, if daddies and mothers don't get these things into the minds and the hearts of their young'uns, they're never going to get them in this generation. It's got to come from the parents, if it comes at all. Well, I could just talk on and on and on on that point, but I've got to quit sooner or later. And it's getting pretty later. Let's look at a third point, rapidly. With reference to the sanctity of marriage, in Matthew chapter 9 and at verse 9, or, or chapter 19 and at verse 9, Jesus is in discussion with his disciples concerning the matter of putting away one's wife and marrying another. And the simple statement of the Lord is, I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication and shall marry another committeth adultery. And he that marrieth her when she is put away committeth adultery. I'd like to suggest to you, my friends, that that was the word of God when Jesus spoke it, and it's going to be the word of God at the judgment bar of God. 
I have no dis disposition to change it. I couldn't if I would, and I wouldn't if I could, and I don't really appreciate anybody coming to me and sort of wanting me to say some kind of a religious ceremony, you know, that'll legalize adultery and think that because a preacher has something to say about it or some religious leader sort of smooths it over that it's going to get it all fixed up with the Lord. Instead of having one soul in jeopardy of hell, we'll have two or three when that kind of a mess takes place. If it would do any good, beloved, I could shed a barrel full of tears over some of the messes that have been brought to me at one time or another over a period of some 35 years where men and women have really messed up their lives wholly and solely because either in, in ignorance or in disbelief they disregarded what God has said about the sanctity and the oneness of the marriage relationship. And I learned a long time ago that about the best way in the world for everybody to lose confidence in you was to try to fix up something that you have no business meddling in. And so when folks come to me anymore and we've got a problem, you know, of whether or not I can put this one away or can't put it away or I've already got two and now I'm wanting a third one, uh, I just say, let's turn to the book of God and read it. Now, there's not anything in this book that I am supposed to understand that you can't understand if you give as much time and attention to it as I do. So let's just read it. What does it say? And it says exactly what it did right after Matthew wrote it, I'll tell you. And that's been about 2,000 years ago. And that's just another way of saying that that's been God's record and God's will for about 20 centuries. Well, what did he say? He said, Whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication and shall marry another. What's the exception? Fornication. But whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication and marry another commits adultery. And he that marries her who is put away commits adultery. And Paul says that no adulterer, no fornicator, shall inherit the kingdom of God. I tell you, brethren, I think there are a lot of folks that don't believe it but I am persuaded that there are not many that don't understand it. I want to tell you, that's just all I've got to say about it. That's what God says. And if you can't understand it, there's not anything in the world that I can say to make it any clearer. From the beginning, it has been that God made of the twain one flesh. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and the twain shall become one flesh. And the Lord says that whosoever puts her away except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. And no fornicator shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm saying to you again that just as certain as the golden text of the Bible that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son will be through it the judgment... This passage will be true at the judgment. And the thing that people who profess to love God need to do is to believe it and obey it instead of trying to get around it. The reason that so many of us get our lives messed up is because we either didn't have the teaching ourselves and now we're concerned about what's happening to our children and we wake up one day to realize we haven't taught them what God said when they susceptible to God's teaching. And so they marry and are given in marriage to a dozen or two dozen or as how many other parts of dozens as necessary to satisfy their fleshly desires and passions. And we have legalized adultery. And Florida recently has moved into the very forefront of the states that are legalizing it. That doesn't change what God says. The Florida legislature and the governor and nobody else has the power to supersede God's law on any matter of the spirit or of morals. None. That's all I've got to say about that. 
I just hope my brethren will believe it. Point number four. The rule that always works, the one that never fails. You know, it's amazing the number of books that are sold and the psychologists and psychiatrists that are consulted by folks that are fussing with their companions or all upset about the things that are happening in their would-be happy home and they seek for consolation and consultation everywhere except in the one place that has been available to them through the centuries that they never think about consulting. There is not a single thing that the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament fail to teach about what is involved in having a successful, happy, married life that is taught in any modern publication. If Dr. So-and-so says so-and-so, then our disposition is to say, now that's the last word. Oh, Dr. Spock's really got it. Well, what about Dr. Solomon? He is said to be the wisest man that ever lived on the face of the earth, apart from Jesus Christ himself. If I ever get around to it before I die, I'm going to compile all the passages in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and some of the other works of the Old Testament that have to do with nothing in the world but family relations. Put that in the book and publish it and put the name of God on the outside. That's all. I don't know whether anybody would read it or not, but if we just stop to think about some of the simple teaching in the Bible, and it doesn't take the Bible all day to say what needs to be said, to talk about the principle. And one of those great passages, and the one that, as far as I'm concerned, is the greatest of all, is a passage that I suppose is loved as much, probably read as frequently, and believed and practiced as little as anything in all the book of God. Would you believe the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's treatise on love? Well, I just thought that applied to my attitude toward the brethren. Well, who said that? The Bible doesn't say that. It certainly would, but here's an eternal principle. And it will apply in any kind of a relationship in life. Why not apply it to the domestic affairs of life? Me toward my wife, my wife toward me, my attitude toward my children, my children's attitude toward me. Why not, as a parent, try to instill into my children and all members of my family the understanding of the significance of these simple passages here? Sixteen different times in just three or four verses, love is personified. That means that love is given human qualities and characteristics and is presented as speaking or acting like a human being. The question is, why not just apply it at home? You don't have to wait till you get to the church house to start reading the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I just want to simply read it tonight, and then instead of making a lot of comments on it, I mean just these three or four verses, not the whole chapter, but just three or four verses, and instead of a lot of comments, I'm going to read various translations of the passage. Let's begin with verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, and the first line we read each time is the King James Version. Charity, except I'll use the word love here as a substitute for that. Love suffers long and is kind. Now, without telling you every time which translation I'm reading, I'm just going to read synonyms. Love suffereth long and is kind. The point is, love suffereth long, it's very patient. It is slow to lose patience. Love is kind. 
That is, love is gracious. It looks for a way of being constructive. All right, the second part. Love envieth not. Love never boils with jealousy. Love knows no jealousy. Love vaunteth not itself. That is, love is neither anxious, it is not anxious to impress. Love makes no parade. It's never boastful. Love is not puffed up. That is, it is not arrogant, conceited, does not put on airs, does, it, does, not, in cherish in, does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. King James Version doth not behave itself unseemly. That is, it's never rude, unmannerly. It's never indecent. Love seeks not her own. That is, never selfish. Does not insist on its own way. Does not insist on its own rights. Is never self-seeking. Does not pursue selfish aims. Again, it is not easily provoked. That is, love bears no malice. It is not quick to take offense. It is not irritable. It is not touchy. It thinketh no evil. That is, it never reckons up her wrongs. Love keeps no score of wrongs like an accountant. It does not keep an account of evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. It rejoiceth not in unrighteousness. Takes no pleasure in wrongdoing. Does not gloat over other men's sins. Is never glad when others go wrong. But it rejoiceth in the truth. That is, rejoices at the victory of truth. Joyfully sides with the truth. Is always glad when truth prevails. Delights in truth. Love beareth all things. That is, she can overlook faults, is always slow to expose, bears up under anything. There is nothing love cannot face. Love knows no limit to its endurance. Believeth all things. That is, she has unquenchable faith, always eager to believe the best, exercises faith in everything. There is no limit to its faith, no end to its trust. Hopeth all things, that is, always hopeful, hopeful under, hopes under all circumstances, keeps up hope in everything. Endureth all things, that is, she is ever patient, endures without limit, gives us power to endure everything. Love never fails, will never come to an end never disappears, shall never pass away. May I make a suggestion to you before we close? If you're having at it at your house as husband and wife, if you're having at it with your children, and young people, if you're having at it, when I'm saying having at it, I'm just saying you're in either a verbal or maybe a physical conflict all the time. After you've read all the treatises of the psychologist and conceivably have been to a, psychiatric, a psychiatrist's couch and let him shrink your head and try to tell you that most of your problems, if not all of them, are either traceable to some kind of an abnormal sex experience that you had or didn't have in the days of your youth, or else all of your frustrations are due to your belief in God. After you've had all that hope down you, your faith taken from you almost, or an attempt to make. And if perchance you're one of these avid readers of all this yellow trash magazine that you get at the newsstand and the drugstores for a quarter or 35 or 50 cents or whatever they cost, and, uh, you are... Uh, have read all of this true love much. It presents some kind of an idealistic picture of life. 
and tends, as you read it, to impress your mind with the fact, well, that's not my husband, and if I just had a husband like this girl found, then all of my troubles would cease and my heart would uh, bounce with joy, and you have filled your mind and your heart and your whole soul with this kind of trash which always presents really and truly an unrealistic picture of life as viewed from a wholesome, moral, and spiritual viewpoint. And when you've tried it all, and then you've taken all of the pills that the druggist will let you have legally to quiet your nerves and to settle your headaches and your ailments, which you've attributed to this very unhappy domestic situation that you find yourself in. I'd like to make one recommendation to you. I'd like to recommend that you try love. The Bible says it never fails. I want to tell you, it may involve some crawling. It may involve some apologizing. It may involve some saying, I'm sorry. But genuine love is willing to do it all. And when it's applied by both sides of the house toward the other person, whether it be a parent toward a child, a child toward a parent, a husband toward a wife, or a wife toward a husband, when there's a mutual understanding of what's involved in the great principle of love, it'll work. And I want to tell you, there's not anything else that will work permanently. Is Christ in your home? One parting statement. He'll never be in your home or mine until he's in our hearts. When Christ rules our hearts, he'll rule our homes. We're singing an invitation here. You've listened patiently for an hour and five minutes nearly. I appreciate the fine attention that you've given. But there may be somebody present tonight who is not a Christian, who would respond to the gospel call to confess your faith in the Lord and be baptized tonight into him. Or you've wandered from duty in a public way you've brought shame and reproach upon the name of the Lord and you want to make that right to your brethren and to those that you may have sinned against. And if that's your disposition tonight,